What do you think it feels like to live with DACA status? So that was, I think, probably the, the hardest part of med school, dealing with, am I still going to be here? Like, how do you stay motivated and study hard for step one and then study for step two and then apply to residency when you're not 100% sure if you're going to be here next year? You're not 100% sure if you're actually going to be able to do the job that you are spending thousands and thousands of dollars and like hundreds of hours studying for. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare for Humans. You just heard from Dr. Duran, a DACA clinician and our guest today. In this episode, you'll hear more about the challenges she has faced holding a DACA status, how she has persevered despite the uncertainty of DACA as a program, and what this means for you caring for DACA-mented patients. Before we get into the episode, let's talk about what DACA is. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is a U.S. immigration policy that allows individuals who are brought to the country as children and meet certain requirements to apply for temporary protection from deportation. So, it allows people who came to the U.S. as kids, undocumented, to be able to work. I mean, kids. The average age of a DACA recipient when they came to the U.S., was seven years old, and they've lived here for more than 20 years on average. The United States of America is the country they know and what feels like home. If I had to sum up the experience of living with DACA status, it would be uncertainty. Living with uncertainty is the reality for many individuals with DACA. While DACA does provide temporary protection from deportation, there's no pathway to citizenship. And the program can quickly change because DACA is an executive order. This means that a president can rescind it and change it at any moment. Think about living your life with that kind of uncertainty. People are often unsure of their future in this country daily. Despite this uncertainty, DACA recipients like Dr. Duran show their resilience. I say resilience, but Dr. Duran puts an asterisk on that point and notes that a system should not only allow you to succeed if you're resilient. To be honest, all of us have probably heard about DACA a lot, but most of us probably have not spoken with someone directly impacted by it. This distance, the distance between us and quote unquote them, who we hear about but don't interact with, is why it's so difficult to truly understand, hold compassion, and advocate for those who are affected by it. Especially, especially in a polarized environment where discussions around immigration always end up heated. I hope this episode changes that for you and helps close that distance. Here's Dr. Duran. Dr. Duran, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Tell me your story. Where are you at? What are you doing these days? I am a third-year resident at a family medicine residency. 
I'm not sure where you want to start or like... Start at the beginning, Ale. I want to know it all. Okay, let's see. I was born in Mexico and I came to the U.S. when I was 14 with my family. So I have four siblings. I'm the oldest of five in total with my mom. When someone asked me where I'm from, I'm from Mexico, but also from Georgia. Right now, my family lives in Savannah. So that's also where I call home sometimes. We settled there, did this, that, and the other, kind of some odd jobs. Cleaning tables in restaurants, washing dishes, sometimes doing the crops. So whatever was in season, I lived in northern Florida for a while. So pretty much whatever brought money to the house, my sister and I and mom did. Kind of like to keep things going. It was a very interesting kind of like growing up situation. Okay, you were in Georgia. And then when did you decide to be a doctor? At some point, there was a question of, in one of the high schools that I attended in Florida, Mariana, Florida, I was figuring out what people were doing after high school just because I heard some people talking about college. And my mom is not college educated. She did finish what's equivalent to elementary schools here. So we didn't really have a plan. And I started asking around. I asked my guidance counselor and they're like, oh, you apply for financial aid, you apply for different things, and then you can start looking for colleges. But then I realized that they didn't have a social security number. So what Americans normally did, I, I just couldn't do. I, I couldn't apply to financial aid because I didn't have a social and I couldn't apply to most colleges because of the same situation. So I realized that was probably not going to happen for me. I came here walking through the Arizona desert with my family. So I didn't really realize that I wasn't documented until that time. I don't know if this makes sense, but I was a kid. I didn't really know. So it wasn't until then. And then I realized, oh man, I guess this is not happening, but, but I don't want to go to school. So I went home and I asked my mom about these things. And then she yeah, I really don't know, but maybe we can ask some people. And I went back to this guidance counselor. And when I did tell her that I was undocumented, it was just like, yeah, you're just never going to be able to do anything. And it was kind of out of spite. You're just never going to be able to do anything. I'm not really sure why you guys are here. And I thought I had gotten my family in trouble because of saying this thing out loud. But she was very negative and borderline racist there. So I'm like, I'm just going to go ahead and go because you say I can't in a way. And then we move. Holly, that says a lot about you. I know, I love right? That about you. <laughs> there was a thing. And then we moved to Georgia where I ended up graduating. And I think it was a situation, again, I am presented with this obstacle where most people really don't think about this, but if you don't have a social security number, then you don't have a way of really applying anywhere. In Southeast Georgia, there are a few universities that will take you, but you have to pay out-of-state tuition because you are technically not a resident. So I think it was half luck, half other people realizing that I was kind of a little bit of a smart cookie. And they're like, I can't believe you're not going anywhere. Because during that senior year, I, I was just like, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. Everybody already had things lined up, whatever their parents went to college. And I just, I didn't know. It wasn't until about the last three months from high school where I told my geography teacher, Mrs. Holland, who I actually still keep in contact with through Facebook. I think she's like 97 or something. And then she's like, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm going to look. I'm going to do the Google search. And I'm like, okay, she's going to do the Google search. We didn't have a computer at home. 
we didn't really have a lot. So I'm like, yeah, she's going to do the Google search. And I thought it was something way faster <laughs> than it actually is. And she came up with a list of places that if you had enough, like high enough grades, and I had almost 3.9 GPA. So she's like, yeah, I think if you have like high enough grades, they're just going to overlook the other stuff. And I was lucky enough that it did happen. I ended up going to Armstrong State University on a full a merit scholarship where I majored in chemistry. And yeah, that's kind of how that happened. It was more of realizing that I was going to go because people didn't think I could do it. And then just telling enough people and the universe conspiring in my favor kind of situation. I have so much love and for Mrs. Holland that just kind of like took this as our side project and just, again, did the Google search and made this happen. And then, I don't know, I wrote an essay and did all those things and didn't need a social security number as long as you were smart enough kind of situation. Kudos to Miss Holland. We need more people like that, right? Yeah, Mrs. Marlene Holland. She still lives in Fayette County in Georgia. Maybe we could share this podcast with her after it's completed. Yeah. I want her to, I don't know, be recognized yeah. for the help she provided you. Absolutely. Yeah, so I went to college. It was pretty fun. And then throughout college, I realized that I, I initially started in biology. I was not going to be able to do that. It was just great for people who do biology. But I wanted something that was way more applied, something that was a little bit more hands-on. Um, I tried chemistry, like physical chemistry. That was fun. And then at some point, I became aware of, in, in Southeast Georgia, there's a large immigrant community that works mostly in the crops. I became aware in Southeast Georgia, there is a huge health disparities, not only for immigrant women, but for women in general. There's a couple of ob guys in a span of 240 miles, like a whole radius, very close where, where we live, there was a huge disparity in prenatal care and just the ability to access care. The majority of healthcare, like in many parts of the country, happened through the ER. And how I figured that was, one, I never really needed to go to the doctor because I was young and healthy. And the only reason I ever went was to, to a free clinic with my mom for some shots. Having health insurance wasn't a thing for us. We were healthy people. If something hurt, my mom put bigs on it and it was fine afterwards. During college, I was volunteering as an interpreter in the emergency room. And I realized that there were people coming in with situations that were just so sad, like people coming in with limbs and then eventually you're going to need amputation because they had diabetes and they just were never able to see a doctor. They were uncontrolled or women coming in with no prenatal care to deliver in the ED. And it was a lot of like Hispanic people, and it was a lot of my people, and a lot of those cases I was involved in because of my ability to speak English and Spanish. And I thought, oh man, there has to be a better way about this. There has to be something that someone can do. There has to be something. And that's where my interest started. My interest in medicine, in, in knowing that, hey, I, I could actually do this. I could actually be good at this. And you could really care about this, be there for these people. So that's kind of where it started. And then it hit me again. I don't have a social. How are you going to go to med school? It's one of the most competitive kind of fields in the U.S. Even getting into med school for anyone that has all the resources, all the family support, guidance on just doing all these things, MCAT, applying to different th That was going to be an uphill battle. But my personality again, I went home and told my mom, I'm like, hey, you think I could like be a doctor in, around here? 
She's like, yeah, I think so. My mom is very supportive. And she doesn't know how to do these things. But she knows we are capable of these things. And yeah, we just have to tell enough people and do enough looking around. And I, I think you could. And it was a thing of, I started talking with some of the ER doctors who reasonably were really, were really kind of hoping that things would change too. They also saw what I saw and they were so concerned as I was about, man, these situations are really preventable. A lot of the amputations, DKA, a lot of the things that are happening here, mostly with diabetes, hypertension, and prenatal care are, are things that are easily fixable with just a couple of visits. So from there, I, I kind of had to make up my mind in this. I, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And it's going to happen no matter what. And I'm just going to figure it out. And that's kind of what I did. I realized I went on Google again. And I figured out that you had to take a thing called the MCAT. And then you had to do well on that. And then eventually you had to put in applications. And then you had to volunteer, which I was already doing. And then I started talking with some doctors about just shadowing them in their clinics. I'm like, hey, I want to do this. And at this point, many of the doctors didn't know I didn't have a social. It was not something that you just say to anyone because of where we live in Southeast Georgia. It's a place where I love that place, but it, it's dangerous to be undocumented. It's dangerous because you risk your family being deported. You risk if someone knows about your situation, you risk immigration knocking on the door or just many things. And then eventually um, DACA happened. So this is where DACA comes into the situation here. In 2013, I was able to apply to DACA and get it. And what that actually meant was I went from a person who had no social security number, no legal ability to work in the U.S. to someone who was here for now, because of an executive order by then President Obama, with the aid of many people, recognized that many of us came here as kids. And through no fault of our own, we were in this situation where we are not American because we don't have the documents, but we're also not Mexican because we're not from there. And we can't really go back because we came here as kids. So we know this country to be our own. We know ourselves to be Americans in our hearts. But the paper was just not there. What DACA really essentially did was it provided some relief. It provided a two-year-at-a-time work permit so you can work legally, a social security number, and very importantly, a driver's license. Because many times driving to college, it was an equal chance of making it to 8 o'clock biology or going to jail for driving without a license. It was interesting, and I did stress up, uh, about that a lot just because it's, it was a difficult situation. So this provided a, a stepping stone. At that time, there was only a couple of universities, a couple of medical schools that were accepting DACA students. Well, you could apply. So there was not like a, like a quota, like a number of DACA students that they were going to take. But pretty much what they said was, if you have the chops to get in here, they really can't stop you. So if you have the MCAT scores, if you have the letters of recommendation, if you have the grades, we'll let you compete with the other thousands of kids that want to be doctors. One of the universities or schools that did that was Loyola Street School of Medicine. It's a private medical school in Chicago where I did my medical school. 
the other school that was accepting DACA applicants was Harvard uh, Medical School and UCLA at that point. So it was kind of like three spots, as you probably know, with being a doctor. Applying to med school, it's a situation where people apply many times. And sometimes people don't get in, and that's just the way it goes, and then you apply next year. So I went ahead and applied to only one med school. I applied to Loyola because I realized that that was the place that aligned mostly with my beliefs, not because of their Jesuit teachings, but because of the way they advertise this. So at that point in their website, it was the first time that we were recognized as, oh my God, you're capable. And if you think you can do it, you will look at your application kind of situation. Instead of being like a hushy situation, which was what it was in the other medical schools that it wasn't really on their website. You had to call and it was like being transferred between a couple of people. Yeah, we'll do it, but shh, kind of situation. Yeah. People were very open about Yes, we're doing this. And yes, if you're a worthy candidate, we will take you. And that was really awesome. I just wanted to have a place where I could do that. So yeah, I applied and I got in. I was so happy. But then the problem came with, look, how are you going to pay for this? Because <laughs> you can't get financial aid. You right? cannot get financial aid. So with DACA, with financial aid, you have to have a, a social, which I did. But my social only works two years at a time. So in order for you to get a loan, you either had to get a personal loan from a bank for $320,000, as it was my case for the full four years, with no credit or family assets or money or anyone to like be a co-signer for anything. Because at that time, we can't even gather our assets, quotation marks there, and we had all of like $22,000 worth of things that included our trailer. Like we lived in a trailer park and that included our cars and everything. Those were our assets, which were worth nothing apparently to the bank. They're like, yeah, that's cute, but no. So eventually I got into contact with the Resurrection Project. That's actually how I got my loan. It was a personal loan through the Resurrection Project because even though you're here for two years, you can't get any council loans which was like a small miracle on its own, like being able to get that money and being able to not only get accepted to med school, but being able to pay for it. And then now you get to do the easy part, which is medical school. For me, in- Ale, how are you finding all these resources? Oh, it just seems incredible that you're coming on to this. I Because know. it's so hard. There's nobody around you helping you, telling you, hey, you might not be able to, but here's four places you can call and they'll give you loans. How did you do it? In all honesty, I called about like 150 spots throughout the whole time and got information. And then it was just persistence, to be honest. Throughout most of what I've done is persistence of, we don't know, but we'll ask somebody and then get back to me. And they're like, no. And then you go to the next spot and then you go to the next spot. And then you, I mean, you put it out in the universe and the universe has to conspire in your favor. That's what my mom says all the time. And I believe that. So it was a wild situation because the first day of med school, I was so relieved. It was an easy part there. I got like stuff. I got my loans. Now I just need to do the learning stuff and then the doctoring stuff, which it did not seem that daunting. After what I had to do to get into med school, I think I was relieved when the first day of med school started. And it was great. I love it. Med school was like great and awesome and fun. 
And it was the first time that I felt like one of my peers because we were all strolling a little bit. We were all like, oh, pharmacology, we hate it. I'm like, yes, I also hate that too. Like I get to have yeah. first world problems for the first time in my life. I'm like, yes, I was very happy about that. And then 2016 hit, which was the election, right? So the election where then President Trump was elected and he was elected on this kind of campaign of we really don't like immigrants. We're just going to go ahead and revoke DACA because DACA is a, an executive order. So whoever's in office can do that. So you're not here for good. You're just here while people can tolerate you a little bit or while it's but politically advantageous for people, for both Republicans and Democrats. I don't lean either way because we've been used by both of them as political tokens. So at that point, it became really stressful. It became really stressful because of a lot of the things that were happening. And at some point, there were, well, not just at some point, there was a couple of points where DACA was on the verge of being revoked. And what that meant for me was that my loan was contingent upon me being able to have DACA. If at any point I had a lapse there, it would become due. So $320,000 will become due at whatever point I didn't have that. And I couldn't continue medical school if that happened because you don't have a social because of many situations there. So for uh, about four years, I felt like things were always on the balance. So that was, I think, probably the, the hardest part of med school, dealing with, am I still going to be here? Like, how do you stay motivated and study hard for step one and then study for step two and then apply to residency when you're not 100% sure if you're going to be here next year? You're not 100% sure if you're actually going to be able to do the job that you are spending thousands and thousands of dollars and like hundreds of hours studying for. It was kind of mental preparation of I'm just going to do the best I can for now and then do the best I can to be the best doctor I can possibly be just in the off chance that I can still be here like in the next year or something, which was okay most of the time, except when it was like hard times, like starting for step one, everybody has some PTSD from that. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And then I'm, what a mindset, Ale. That's hard. It is kind of hard, but you know, I'm stubborn. My mom is also stubborn and she's like, well, just because they say you couldn't doesn't mean you can't. So if you want to, you can just do it. That's how we grew up being myself and my four siblings. So I got through med school and it was great. And then I was actually lucky to be, I think I say lucky a lot, but I do think that there's an element of luck in these situations and people who see the value in, in, in what you're doing and help you along. I do think that I didn't get here by myself. I think that many people helped me throughout the way. But yeah, I was lucky I got to be uh, here for residency for family medicine. I was just so excited. It was like the culmination of, oh my God, okay, now I'm going to get a real job. I've never earned so much money. I know this does not reflect what most people think about earning money in residency. But mind you, my whole family assets were like two, like $22,000 at the beginning of med school. So I, I come here and I'm earning like $70,000 a year. I am feeling rich. I am feeling like, man, I kind of made it. I'm getting to be a doctor and I'm earning money and I can help my mom and I'm doing really well. And that has been the thing. Sometimes I think about, well, residency is hard for everyone. 
But I think for me, the hardest part of residency has been whenever it's time to renew my DACA status. And sometimes there was a little bit of a delay during the pandemic. So for many reasons, and I was very scared. I was very scared that I was not going to get to keep doing this. I started residency in June of 2020 of having to work through a pandemic and like some of the most dangerous kind of situations like most doctors have during this time. It was about, man, what if I don't get to do this? Because what if my status doesn't come in? Eventually it did, thank God. But yeah, so that's like my whole story. That's me. So I am almost at the end of my residency and I'm about to take a faculty job within that same residency that I really like and I'm very excited about. So, yeah. Ali, I'm so excited. You're going to work with me. Yes, I am. Ali, thanks for sharing that. Yes, I think there are so many parts that I want to talk about a little bit more. And maybe I will start first with the process because you were talking about the uncertainty and the difficulty of waiting. I think it was especially hard during the pandemic. But tell me what the process is for applying for DACA. Because the processing time for that is like eight months. And I know people who've gotten into trouble because you have to renew every two years and the processing time is eight months. And if you don't get it back in time, what happens, right? So the thing is, you don't actually know how long it's going to take to process it. So the official instructions on the website are apply no more than 180 days before your expiration date. So it's about six months. So you're like, okay. But in many cases, it can take up to a year for this whole thing to process. So you have to, again, go through a background check, get your fingerprints and all of that. You have to maintain yourself out of trouble. That's never really been hard for me in terms of you really can't go to jail. You don't want to get in trouble for any reason because that can prevent you from being able to apply again. You also want to make sure that you have the money for it. One of the things that it's very expensive each time that you apply it with all the fees, it ends up being about a little shy of $1,000. So for many people, that can be burdensome. And then you have to send all the paperwork, have to keep them updated with your addresses, what you're doing as well, and then make a case of why you still need your status renewed. And then you send it and cross your fingers. And then you hope that it comes back on time before your work permit expires. Because if it doesn't, and I got really close to this last time it, this happened, it came four days before my permit expired. But you have to start making arrangements. I kind of was holding my breath Oh my there. gosh. Yes. Yeah. That's talk about mental stress. Oh. What do you mean arrangements, right? What were you thinking? If you can work legally in the U.S., which is what happens, you really can't stay in your residency program. So what I had to do is, and I, my residency has been super helpful and very supportive, but you have to tell them, you know what? I applied for this thing about eight or nine months ago. It's still not coming. I haven't heard from them. And it's not a process of there's a tracking number and you can figure it out. There isn't. You have to just wait. So I was already making arrangements for a leave of absence from residency when it got there. And we all collectively had a moment of a deep breath. Oh, thank God this is happening. But that can yeah. happen at any point. That can happen when I'm an attending. That can happen at any point. And if it, it does come the point where there's a lapse in my work, I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen. Uh, 
Yeah, it's that is the stressful part of our residency. Residency itself is pretty okay. It's pretty cool. It's actually like a really cool job. Yeah, that makes sense. So we heard about DACA from the perspective of you becoming a doctor and all the difficulties that you had to face and overcome for that. I want to talk about you as a person and its mental effect on you and your family. There's been so many studies done on DACA recipients, the documented. Somebody said that. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Yes. But they found that it improves high school graduation rates and employment outcomes. That makes sense because you finish high school and you can get a job. It decreased rates of poverty. Again, makes sense because you can get a job. Lower teen birth rates, improvements to mental health, and stronger feelings of inclusion and belonging. This whole debate is so polarized, as you just noted, the DACA program was rescinded in 2017 and then legally challenged. But as clinicians, healthcare systems, and people caring for each other, the evidence overwhelmingly says DACA helps people feel better and helps their health. Right, Ali? And I think as a person, I can hear it from you. I think as a person, it gives you the opportunity to be your best self. And to actually put to use some of the skills that you already have because of the lived experiences that you had. For many people who just have that, for me, for a long time, there was like this, this wall that you just couldn't get over because you just didn't have a social and you just couldn't do it. And it didn't matter how smart you were. If that didn't happen, I wouldn't be a doctor. And for my siblings, they all are doing really well in each of their careers because of the same reason. It's nothing wrong with having some other job. My mom cleans houses for a living still. And I probably would be doing about the same thing, which is a job that I know how to do, which is a job that is that has provided for a family for a long time. But I don't think that it's a job that, for me at least, would have fulfilled my intellectual kind of requirements of what I want to be doing and provided so much of the happiness that I have because I get to be a doctor. I get to be, I get to do this really cool profession where people allow you into their lives, where you get to exercise your mental abilities and you get to be there for people and you get to to guide through some of the hardest parts of their lives for many and some of the happiest moments in life for others, like the birth of a child or like the death of a loved one. So I think for me, being able to have DACA really did change my life in that aspect that I could be who I was meant to be. Yeah. And we all benefit when people are their best selves, right? Whatever that is and contributing to the community with the impact they can make. Like you said, for you, this is like your calling, Ale. Every time you talk about it, you say, it wasn't that hard. I love it. I don't think everybody thinks that way about medicine. So we need people like you. That's for sure. And the other part of, I think, the anxiety, at least what I've read and heard from people, is that the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, the office that processes the documents, now has all your personal information, including your address and everything. So if the program gets rescinded or canceled, there's a sense of vulnerability of now somebody, especially the government, knowing everything about you and your status. Does that feeling exist with you and your family too? Oh God, yes. So whenever DACA was first rolled out, so this was 2012, 
it was a, a whole family decision. The whole family comes together. And if we do this and something goes wrong, or if this is some kind of scam, or if this is something that it was too good to be true, honestly, at that moment, then we all can get deported. And we're going to get deported to a country that we really don't know. I really didn't have much schooling for the first 14 years of my life because we lived in the country, like in a ranch. We did most of our schooling through like a one room house situation. So I'm like, am I going back over there? I don't know anyone. But yeah, there is a true concern of you update your address, you update pretty much everything. It's a requirement of this program. And should something happen, we are the easiest people to deport. Because of that, everybody knows where you live, where you work, pretty much everything about you. Yeah, that's scary, Ali, to be in that position and so vulnerable. And I think even when you have DACA, I think for many people, after 2017, this vulnerability became so clear and the vulnerability of it being executive order became clear. Many individuals, I think, started avoiding healthcare facilities despite having active DACA status and maybe even insurance because of exposing their identity to more places. And I think that uncertainty has shown somewhat in the evidence because all of these positive health outcomes decreased even though the DACA program still exists because people are unsure of its future, depending on the presidency, right? Yes, I do think so. I think personally, I... I, I still worry about these things. We are in limbo, really, because we are not, this is not permanent. And I foresee that coming in this next election. Anyone can use our status as a politically motivated situation, and it can be really bad for us. And it can be really difficult for many people who depend on this, people who have children, people who depend on that one person's job for the income for the entire family, perhaps. It definitely provides a level of anxiety. While it's better than what we had, it definitely has created another problem of, yeah, many people do have jobs, do have insurance, but we're just going to try and not draw too much attention to ourselves. Situation. Yeah, exactly. And just the feeling of you could be doing amazing things and not wanting attention, even though you're such a great clinician. I'm so glad that you're coming on this podcast. But I don't think everybody would want to do something even like that. Yeah, I think so. In, initially, I'm no stranger to the, the lights. In med school, I did a lot of work with Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois and a lot of work in D.C. with advocating for a path to citizenship. Because while many people say, get in line, well, just apply, there is no line. There, There is no just apply situation. What we, what many people, many activists in I dare say still call myself an activist in that aspect. Hope for is a permanent solution to this because it would change so many people's lives. It would change health outcomes for so many. It would change the amount of mental health issues that people have, including anxiety, depression. Yeah, it was a question I asked myself in 2016. Am I going to be open and vocal about this or am I hiding? And I'm not the hiding person situation. If something has happened, I'm just going to go ahead and say the things that I need to say because I think it's important. I think it's important for people to know that there is a doctor who is documented, that I too have been through these situations and perhaps better than most can understand 
what's happening in a family's life, what's happening in an individual's life when immigration status is part of the equation. Um, it's a huge burden for many people. And I think being able to say this out loud and people knowing about this is one of the first steps in people realizing that this doesn't just affect the people who clean your house. This doesn't just affect people who are removed from you. It affects your colleagues too. It affects people who work in your same office. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons I'm very outspoken about this because people just need to recognize that this affects much more than many more people than they realize. And it's not just about the people, but there's intergenerational effects. I like to make sure people acknowledge that because so much of what we, what we talk about in this podcast is trauma from historical events or community trauma. And for DACA specifically, there's been research to show that kids of DACA recipients have less anxiety and mental health disorders. Again, it's easy to imagine why, but there's generational effects of policies like this. Yes, absolutely. Because if you can imagine that your children, I would say for myself, I'm an adult now, but when I was 14 and then through high school, eventually when I learned the full extent of it, I realized why I was always concerned when my mom was a little bit late from work. Because there was always that concern of, am I not going to see my mom again? Is she going to be stopped because of driving without a license? In what are we going to do about that? There's five kids at home and what if she doesn't come back? That's something that thankfully is less common with children of documented people because they don't have to wonder if their parents are coming home and they don't have to wonder if they're going to be there for the next day. And they don't have to really make plans of if this happens, where can we go? Which adult can we talk with or stay at? You don't have to have those kind of crisis planning. And I think that's huge because for a long time, I was always worried about my mom and where she was and what if she didn't come back? So I think for many kids, that's going away and that's really going to help them in so many aspects. There's no reason why a kid should be worried about whether or not their parents are coming home. Imagine the trauma and the effects that that could have. And part of the history of DACA, Ali, you know this mm -hmm. well, is when... In June 18, 2020, the Supreme Court held the Trump administration's termination of DACA violated the Administrative Procedures Act because they just said, oh, we're going to end this program without acknowledging all the consequences of that. And I think that more than 800,000 people have DACA and more than 1.3 million people live with a DACA recipient with 300,000 children born to one parent with DACA. So if you rescind DACA, all of a sudden, 300,000 children would lose a parent just like that if they were all deported. It's powerful to think about this in numbers. It's something that not only affects the individual. And again, you have to think about this. People who have DACA came here as children. There's people who came here at the age of one or two. I came here as 14, but people who have lived here the entire lives. People who don't really, in many instances, don't speak their native languages. Rescinding something like that would affect, I don't know, like so many people in so many ways. And some more statistics to give context, Ali, just to everything mm -hmm. that you're saying. The average age of a DACA recipient when they arrived to the U.S. was seven. 
you said people are one to two, you are 14, because the criteria for DACA is strict. Not everybody can get DACA um, because you had to be younger than 31 in 2012 and came to the U.S. when you were less than 16 years old and here since 2007. You got to do some math around there, but it means most people, as you noted, were really young when they came. Yes. And some other criteria there is you have to do something with it. So you either have to get your GED, you have to get your high school diploma. And if you're applying for a work permit, you have to be employed. So it's one of those things that when people decided, oh, we're just not going to do this, it was really not well thought through because of there is really no downside to this. And I may not be the most objective person because I am a DACA recipient. In terms of finding out what is actually wrong with this and why would people want to eliminate it, I don't see a valid reason for it, in all honesty. And DACA itself, as you're noting, you need a more permanent solution, but DACA itself is constraining. There's no pathway to citizenship. And can you travel, Ale? Yes and no. There are only three ways that you can travel. One of them is humanitarian. It's called an advanced parole. So pretty much you can't just decide I'm leaving the country tomorrow for a vacation and then I'm coming back in two weeks. No. So pretty much you have to plan it months and months in advance and it's called an advanced parole. So you have to apply for it. There's only three instances where you can get it. One of them is humanitarian reasons. For example, a parent or a grandparent somewhere in another part of the world is dying or something of that nature, then they may or may not give you permission to go in time for you to see this dying relative. The other part is educational or work-related. So it's limited. I mean, honestly, that's not my biggest thing with it, but it is limited. It's not, you can't just go places. You have to ask permission to go anywhere. And if they give you permission, that's great. But if not, you can't go. At least you can go and come back. Yeah. So program limits essentially where you can go. And I think we still have the problem of, I think you were sharing with me about getting a mortgage, right? Can't just get a mortgage and get a house either. So there are a few programs in the U.S. where they will consider you for a mortgage, even with your DACA status. For many people who do get a a mortgage as DACA, they often have a spouse. Just in my experience, they often have a spouse who is a U.S. citizen or has the ability to be able to sign on to that mortgage together. If you are just DACA yourself, it's hard. And I understand the bank's hesitance with it. You're here only for two years. We're not really sure that we want to give you a 30-year loan. We're not really sure you're going to be here for more than two years. So... Even when you have the money to put a down payment on things and your credit is good, it's an uphill battle to try to figure that out. Yeah, all your life has been because of this, right, in many ways. Yeah. And I think the last point to make is that there have been no DACA, new applications for DACA since 2021. That right now, people are only renewing DACA that were obtained before July 6, 2021. And if you let your DACA expire, as you noted, because the processing time just took too long, then you're considered a new applicant again. Yes. So you have to really be on top of it, which is, and sometimes even if you are on top of it, it might just expire on you and you may be out of luck. 
where you are, again, considering a new applicant in that may mean that you can't apply again. Yeah. I can only imagine how the mental toll and what happens to people if that's how you got your DACA revoked because the processing time was too long. And I'm sure it happens. It's, for example, if you're a doctor and, and I am one, but you can be fairly certain that next year you're going to be here. And you can be fairly certain that unless something crazy happens, you're still going to have your job and you are still going to have your home and you have security in what you're doing. I tend not to think about these things because it does make me depressed sometimes to think about, oh man, this is very, this is very unsecured uh, of thinking that something like this can happen to me. It, it, it can happen to anyone. And all of a sudden you've gone to, through school school and residency and then all of this stuff and then it can be gone just like that that definitely takes a mental toll but i'm hopeful i'm hopeful that at some point people will see the sense in providing a path to citizenship because it makes no sense that there's no path to citizenship someone will see it and this will happen i'm hopeful for that but again i'm not sure yeah uncertainty yeah that's what i keep hearing which ali you're so resilient. Oh, thank you. Just the way you talk about this. I'm honored to be in the same space as you are. And I want to say that out loud because I want to recognize that. Thank you. I hope for a day where people don't have to be resilient, where they can just be regular and just like regular, regular. They just have <laughs> regular. They can just like chill right. and not have to be resilient because resilience yeah. is awesome. But for many people, it just like really chips at their own, at their mental health. Um, I think that they may be coming for people. I don't know. I'm hopeful there. Yeah. Okay. Last part of the episode, any takeaway messages or points about caring for folks who have DACA that you want to highlight for clinicians, healthcare systems, leaders, whoever's listening right now? Oh, man. Uh, I think instead of thinking about your patients, think about your colleagues. Do you know someone who has DACA? There's about 100 to 150 of us DACA doctors in the U.S., and can you learn something from that? Just being curious. I think curiosity is one of the best things. It, and if you know someone like that and you can talk with them, I think people learn a lot from just talking with a colleague about these things. That That's what I would say. Be curious and then see if anyone around you perhaps has a story similar to this and they would be comfortable sharing it with you. I think it would benefit many people to hear from their colleagues. Be curious about that. Thanks, Ale. Yeah, I think that's a okay. great point to make. And I like to highlight that curiosity in a way that's humble because doctors and people, clinicians, sometimes are curious in a way that diminishes people's humanity, right? Probing and asking in a way that's hostile because you want to satisfy your own itch rather than honor what you're going through and supporting your colleagues, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Ale. Yeah. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. When you get a chance, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell us why the show or this episode was helpful for you. This will help other people find this content and help make healthcare more caring. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish.